Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA On The Go. All right. Well, today's episode features not one, but two wonderful guests sharing their expertise to inform our advocacy for youth and families. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation because we'll be talking about how child advocates can empower youth to have a voice in a way that I don't think I ever really saw happen for the youth that I worked with, um, which is participating meaningfully in their family meetings um, and in decision-making for their cases. So I feel like based on my experience in practice, um, this is really a place where the system as a whole could shift to better serve children and youth. Um, and I am optimistic that child, that CASA advocates can play a role in that. So our guests today are Lisa Merkel-Holguin and Anita Horner, and I'd love to invite y'all to start by sharing a little about the work that you do. I think it's always more interesting when people are able to tell their own stories um, and talking a little bit about how you came to be passionate advocates for increasing youth involvement in decision-making on their cases. In 1994, um, we had the opportunity when we worked at the American Humane Association to think about new ways of engagement that were happening around the world. Um, in particular, in the country of New Zealand, they had passed a law, the Children, Young Persons and Their Families Act of 1989, which positioned families, family groups, to lead decision-making when their children came to the attention of child welfare or juvenile justice or youth justice organizations. And... I mean, what a privileged position to be in, to get to learn from Maori elders and leaders, from progressive practitioners uh, in, in New Zealand, and, and think about how could this approach called the Family Group Conference uh, be leveraged and implemented in the United States, States and elsewhere in the world. So... We had the opportunity to kind of study the political, economic, social um, constructs and context for implementing family group conferencing in the United States. And at that point in time, there were just a few states around the country that were had heard about this. You have to you have to remember that this is really before the internet, right? So there weren't videos online that you could could access. There were very few reports um, and getting those reports and getting those videos was still by snail mail. Um, and so it was very exciting. It was kind of this exciting time. And as information from New Zealand was coming across, you know, this, the 5,000 mile pond called the Pacific Ocean, um, we just were sitting in this place of kind of, of awe and thinking like, could this really transform systems that work with children and uh, young people and families. And so there were a few states, Oregon, Hawaii, uh, Pocket, and Vermont, um, thanks to the, the good work of, of Dr. Gail Burford and Dr. Joan Pennell, um, California, and Michigan, um, where there was these pilot projects that were happening. And it was all about thinking about how can we position families um, and then to lead decision-making. 
to be the architects of what happens to their families um, when they come to the attention of child welfare systems in the United States. And I and I and I'll I'll stop there just to say that we've done a lot of work. We were at the American Humane Association. Now we are at the Kemp Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect. We established a national center on family group decision-making back in 1998 and have done a lot of training and technical assistance research for the last two decades plus, um, not only in the United States, Canada, but all, and, and other places around the world. And I will say, and I'll um, then turn it over to Anita to kind of tell her story, but the thing that I think was so interesting is that we did not, in the United States, when family decision-making kind of found its way into the portfolios of child welfare agencies, uh, there were these policies that started getting promulgated around the country that resulted in the exclusion of young people in family meetings. Um, and they were based on these very arbitrary um, age, limit, age limits that were established by professionals and service providers. Um, and... I think that, unfortunately, has really impacted uh, for the last couple of decades our willingness uh, and our willingness to consider how do we engage young people in decisions about their own lives. Um, and I will turn it over then to Anita to kind of tell a little bit of her story, but that gives you a little bit of a portrait as to how long we've been engaged in this work, what we care about, um, and... Um, the import of, of this topic that you've asked us um, to discuss today. Awesome, Lisa, thank you. There's a really familiar phrase that uh, we hear often, which is nothing about me without me. And that phrase, I think, uh, says a lot. Uh, it gets right to the point that children and youth should have a say-so about what is being decided or planned for them and about them. And certainly you've got to consider their developmental age and, and uh, you know, where they are, uh, well, not just age, but developmentally where they're at um, and what uh, their circumstances are and really base it on that child individually. What we've seen over the years is that often providers, uh, i.e., whether it's uh, caseworkers, therapists, um, CASAs, uh, attorneys, uh, will often uh, try to protect children, thinking that if they participate in any sort of meetings where the family group, the broader family, not just mom and dad, but the, uh, the wider uh, network, meaning the extended family members and others who may not be blood relatives but are uh, love and care for the children, that when they come together to create plans and make decisions regarding the concerns that have caused them to rise to the attention of uh, the child welfare uh, system, that uh, we've got to protect these children from, from what might happen in these meetings, that uh, these families might not know how to make decisions together or work together. They might talk about things that perhaps could be harmful for uh, children or youth to hear, um, et cetera. And what we find is that uh, we tend to be too protective in a way that really is not protective. We think it is. Uh, that's our intention. And we have good intentions, right? Uh, but the reality is that we're not necessarily uh, considering, I think, 
the things we need to consider. And those things are that uh, by saying a child cannot be involved uh, or a youth cannot be involved in decision making and planning when it's about them, um, what we're doing is we're, we are um, either marginalizing their voice or completely uh, uh, eliminating the opportunity for them to have voice. And I certainly think there needs to be some care in how we involve and include children. I think there's, they deserve to uh, have adequate preparation that we as a system need to provide to them before meetings ever occur, before decisions are ever made about what is expected of them. What are we looking for? And I will say a couple of things. One is, are we looking for uh, them to be able to tell us what they want? Are we asking them to tell us what they need? Are we asking them both? An example of this would be when I talk with a child or youth to try to get to tease out um, these pieces of information, uh, which I would do in preparing them to participate in any sort of uh, decisions that are being made about them or with them, is that I would ask them uh, prior to those meetings, days or weeks ahead of time whenever possible, so they have a time to think about this. What is it that you think you want that you want your family group and everyone else uh, from the system to know? And what is it that you think you need? You may want ice cream for dinner, but you may realize that you're either going to be hungry in a couple of hours, you may have a, a stomach ache as a result of having ice cream for dinner. So it's okay to ask for that. Now let's talk about what do you need? What are the things you need in order to, to feel safe, to feel heard, to feel comfortable, um, to feel like you're a part of this, uh, to know that you are valued. What are the things that you need? And having those conversations with children and youth, again, days, weeks ahead of time, even months. I mean, it depends on what we're talking about. But if you're even looking at, you know, a child who may be aging out of the system, a youth who may be aging out, asking those questions, starting when they're, you know, several years ahead of time, instead of waiting until six months before they turn 18, which has been happening around this country for years, um, is really important. And it gives them a chance to start to think about it. And what we, what we need to understand is that often children and youth follow our lead. So if we're not asking them these questions, what will happen is they may not think they're able to talk about it. And I did have a situation in which I was presenting one year at a conference uh, several years ago, and there were some youth who had aged out of the system who had been in foster care for many years. And um, one of the things I said during my presentation was that uh, youth should have a voice in what's going on and a say-so and um, know that still the adults in the system make the final decision, but that their input is considered um, so that they're not feeling the pressure of having to make that decision on their own. Um, but they're, they're feeling as though their voice is truly valued and their needs are being seriously considered. And I said, you know, we should start doing that, you know, a few years in advance. Well, so after the session, the youth approached me, both of them approached me and they said, you know, we didn't, nobody talked to us about uh, aging out or what we wanted until we were 17 and a half and we're okay. And I said, was that because you wanted to wait until you were 17 and a half to talk about it? Did you know you could talk about it before? And their eyes got really big. And what that told me was that they were in a place where 
You know, they hadn't really considered that, wow, um, maybe if somebody had approached us about that sooner, we would have uh, been, you know, open to uh, talking about it sooner. So it was that recognition that it just hadn't been something that had been considered or put out as a possibility. So I want to just acknowledge that and say that um, we think we're protecting them uh, from, from things by not including them or not putting it on their shoulders. But often what's happening is behind the scenes, they're probably wondering and worrying about what's going to happen after I leave or what's going to happen if something doesn't go the way that I hope it will now. Um, and we need to be addressing that, anticipating that, and talking about it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, as soon as they become involved in the system, these conversations and their involvement needs to, needs to be happening before, during, and after any meetings and decision-making processes. Wow. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for all of that. It can feel intimidating to like talk to young people about things that we, that we're worried will, um, make them feel uncomfortable or like, you know, are just like sensitive things to talk about. Um, but I think you're just pointing to like why it's so important that we find sensitive and appropriate and respectful ways to create that space for them to share what they want. Um, and, and so that they have the chance to self-identify their needs and that advocacy on their behalf isn't hinging on any assumptions about what they might want. The family group conference model has a really interesting component that I don't think has necessarily been fully implemented here in the United States. And that is this notion of a support person for anybody who is vulnerable, whether it be a young person, an offender, or somebody who's been victimized. And I think that speaks when Anita's talking about preparing people, it's also making sure that that support person for that young person has, um, has a role in understanding what they want to share, how they want to share it, how we can create uh, a, client, a safety climate um, for them to um, be the, be their authentic selves, participate in ways that work for them, um, know um, when to take timeouts during these family meetings, um, know what a trigger potentially would be for them, uh, understand past traumas that they've experienced and, 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 and trying to be supportive and, and knowing what not only the, the support person can do, but what other people can do in these family meetings to support young people to, to be um, physically present if that's their choice or at a minimum have their voice represented. And there are all sorts of different ways that we can bring children and young people's voices um, into family meetings, uh, so many creative ways that practitioners around the world um, have uh, implemented to make sure that whether somebody is physically present uh, or not, at least they're at, at a minimum, their voice is, is in the space. Yeah. It's not about if a child or youth has a chance to participate and have a voice. It's how it's never about if they should always have a voice. It's how, what works best for that child or youth. And that we're not just assuming what we think is going to work best, but that we're actually uh, really considering um, what might be most helpful. And I'll just give another quick example of that. Uh, there was a 16-year-old who, um, you know, there had been some issues at home where um, 
it wasn't safe for her to go back. She had not done anything uh, that had, had resulted in the system involvement. And she was in a foster home and did not need to be there. And so it was about sorting out where could she go uh, for permanence because she wasn't going to be able to go back home. And uh, we had uh, widened the circle to include lots of different family members and people who were like family but not blood uh, to attend the, the, pro the conference process. And um, what we were realizing and just pulling those people uh, together before the actual conference as we were doing our preparation with them um, was that there was no one in the family system who was going to be able to, uh, to take her. And so there was concern by the caseworker uh, about whether that uh, that youth should be uh, attend the meeting because she was just going to get disappointed because there wasn't going to be anybody to take her. And they didn't want her to be disappointed and, and felt like she might be harmed by by attending. And so there was some hemming and hawing about how do we make sure she's she's not going to be harmed by this. And of course, we can't we cannot uh, guarantee that. Right. But what we recognized was well, let's ask her. And so we asked her, you know, we said, we don't know if there's going to be what kind of an outcome there's going to be. And we know it's our responsibility to pre prepare you for any possible outcome. So we are going to do that. Um, but uh, what if there's nobody who can take you, you know, would you still want to come to the meeting? Would you and she said, absolutely. Um, and so she went, and she got to hear directly from her family about, um, you know, what their thinking was and how they got to the conclusion of feeling as though there was nobody who was going to be able to take her in. And she was also able to speak her mind about that, um, share her thoughts and feelings um, and ask questions about that to make sure she fully understood. So uh, by the time the meeting was over, um, you know, uh, the caseworker checked back in with her and just wanted to see how she was doing. And she said, actually, this was really helpful because now I know that uh, living with my uh, extended family is not an option and it gives me a chance to now focus elsewhere. I know why. I know what I, I was able to share, how I felt about it. And um, and she said, and I didn't have to wait until the next day and hear it from the caseworker who may or may not be able to answer all my questions about why they decided that. So it turned out that it was in her best interest actually to participate, even though there was disappointment involved. And I would just highlight that even though this, this young woman was 16, that it's important to even consider that with much younger children as well. Of course, there's going to be different ways that they participate and understand and whether they attend the whole meeting or, you know, they're involved in just certain parts and whatever, but they deserve to be able to be involved um, and, and to hear how decisions are being made. And it's uh, what, there's a study that shows uh, that came out of, I think, Norway that shows that um, it's not, to the child, what's most important is um, whether they had a say-so. It's not whether their say-so is what ends up being the final plan. So it's important to recognize that I think we jump to that assumption that if they don't get what they want, then they're not going to be happy. It's certainly our responsibility to prepare them for all possibilities, but to also recognize that uh, perhaps that's not the most important thing to them, but that they did, were they even asked or involved or included? And did it feel like it was enough involvement and inclusion for them? Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate that point, Anita, and all of the information that y'all have been sharing. 
Uh, we're going to pause here. And when we return for part two of this episode, we'll be talking about what some creative ways are that advocates can work to include youth voice in the meetings that we attend and in the case planning process in general. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa.